Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Betsy Reinhardt, the Executive Director of New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners, an accountable care organization, or ACO, headquartered at Concord Hospital in Concord, New Hampshire. New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners was formed as a partnership between four community health systems in Southern New Hampshire, Concord Hospital, the Elliott Health System, Southern New Hampshire Health System, and Wentworth Douglas Health System. In this podcast, Betsy talks about her career and how her education in public health and her background in insurance and strategy merge in her current role leading the ACO's efforts. She talks about how the ACO is a learning organization that is helping the participating partners move toward a strategy of providing value-based care, a recurring theme we have been hearing from a number of leaders in recent interviews. Betsy provides an inside view of how the ACO was formed, how it operates, what the organization's goals and objectives are, and what the participating organizations hope to gain from their collaboration. Betsy's career and current role are great examples of how public health and direct care are beginning to merge as direct care delivery systems become more involved in population health models. You are listening to the extended version of the podcast. An abridged version of the podcast is also available. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for the link to the abridged version. Welcome to The Forge, Betsy. Happy to be here. So you studied small business management at the University of Vermont. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why UVM and why small business management? So, you know, I spent sort of my entire early life thinking I wanted to be a doctor. It's a legacy in our family. My father's a doctor, my grandfather's a doctor, my great-grandfather's a doctor. So I always thought that I wanted to be a doctor. So I actually went to University of Rochester my freshman year, which was where my father graduated medical school from, and was there to study to you know, be a doctor. But somewhere probably around the time, midway through organic chemistry and, and other things, decided that this was really not what I wanted, that I wanted, you know, I felt like the path would be overwhelming and there'd be a lot of time commitment and perhaps not the work-life balance that, that I was really, really wanted. And so um, at that point I decided that Rochester being kind of a school for engineers and, and pre-med that I wanted to go somewhere else. And so with that in mind decided that I was you know, going to go back home. It was sort of what I knew and I grew up in Vermont and so I went okay. back to UVM. And so I think it was important to go there for a couple of reasons, too, because one, it was, I was going there tuition-free, so I, I think there was that opportunity. Um, was that, that a, a scholarship? Or? Yeah, it was, okay. it was because of my father's role within the university. And so oh, okay. I was able to go there tuition-free, and I, it was, I think it was somewhat grounding for me when, at a time when I, sort of, I didn't have a, a great sense of what it, what it was that I wanted to do. Um, so why small business management? I think, you know, think of putting yourself in the shoes of an 18 or 19 year old. At that point, it was my, all of my credits transferred. Okay. So it was one of those things where I said, you know, okay, the, where can I use what I've already done and apply it? 
But another thing that I think was very, I mean, there's many of me, many things I could have transferred my credit to, but, but small business management to me felt very entrepreneurial. And I think that was something that was really appealing to me. Although I haven't been an entrepreneur myself, I think the idea of being an entrepreneur, kind of being passionate about ideas, seeing that come to, you know, fruition, that was really appealing to me. And I thought it would give me kind of a broad scope, general sense of, of what it meant to, to be in business. Okay. So you graduated and uh, it looks like you headed down to the Boston area where you worked in retail for a while. Right. And then at some point you decided to get a master's in public health and you started to go to school at Boston University. How did you come to the decision to, to do that? So I graduated college and I think I continued to sort of wander. I was really somewhat lost early 20s. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Didn't really know what I was good at. Um, you know, I think definitely had a lot of self-doubt, worried that I wasn't quite measuring up. If you think about, you know, being becoming a doctor, it felt very safe in terms of, um, uh, you know, it's a sure thing. It's a choice that I knew would be acceptable, um, certainly to my family. And in my mind, you know, it was sort of like I had the credentials out in the big world. And so I, I wandered a lot in my 20s and I had a lot of different jobs. And, and I honestly, it was opportunities that came up. My sister worked at a at Hills Department Stores, and I ended up taking a job there in marketing and, and planning, and then decided that really wasn't what I wanted to do. Ended up uh, having a friend who was selling travel um, through Vacation Outlet and said, well, you know, maybe I'd like to go travel a little bit. I love to travel. Yeah. So I did that, but, you know, nine months, six, nine months into that, figured out that was really not, my calling was not to be on the phone trying to sell travel packages. And so, you know, what kept coming up for me again during that, which is no surprise, is really healthcare. Knowing I didn't want to be a doctor, thinking, what can I do? And, and really knowing that what was of great interest to me was wanting to have an impact and, and a lot of interest in having an impact in the community, working in the community, um, you know, connecting people, that sort of thing. And so somehow, I don't even know how I came across it. It was probably through research. I came across public health, master's in public health and, I uh, ended up applying to BU, the BU School of Public Health, and, and that ended up uh, where I landed. Okay. And that led you to a job at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare in 1992. Yeah. So being the poor grad student, I needed to figure out a way to make some extra money. So there was a job board that they had at the School of Public Health, and there was an internship position in their professional contracting department. Great. And so I applied for that. And I, I thought, well, you know, I, I thought Harvard Pilgrim at the time it was Harvard Community Health Plan okay. was very it was an interesting organization, very focused on wellness, very focused on prevention. Um, it was a very well regarded organization in the, in the community. So I felt like this would be a really great opportunity for me um, to make some money and to to get more of an insight into healthcare. And so I did that. And during the time that I was there, um, Harvard Community Health Plan started up their strategic planning department. Okay. And so I applied for a position. I think my original position was research associate or something like that. And so I applied for that and I got the job and ended up staying there for the remainder of my time in Boston. And actually, that was really where I had one of my first mentors. And the guy that, that started that department is Peter Adler. He's now actually, I think he's out at Peace Health on the West Coast. And he was sort of the first mentor who really kind of exposed me to a lot of um, higher level discussions, guided me in terms of how to, to do certain kinds of research and really gave me a lot of opportunities um, and supported me and, and you know, really 
uh, helped me further refine where my interests were at. Okay. So you worked in strategy. Is that right? That yes. Strategy. What was that? What, what were you doing in that? So, what was that department responsible for? Yeah, they they did a lot of. There was part of what they did was competitive intelligence type work, where they would go out. Maybe we were interested in an acquisition or a partnership, or maybe we were thinking of doing something strategically, working with you know building relationships with community hospitals. They needed to have the organization leadership needed to have some information and background and data on the organizations that we were considering having a broader relationship with. So pulling together all variety of data, collecting information. I would do primary research, calling up various organizations across the nation if they were thinking about a delegated medical management model. And I'd go and I'd research, you know, the sort of the best practice organizations and bring back that information and present that to leadership. And so a lot of what I did was really support the strategic initiatives and the planning, you know, kind of the planning needs through research and data and presentation of information um, to help leaderships make informed decisions and determine next steps. So how did your education at uh, BU kind of fit into that role? Well, I'm not really sure exactly how it fit into that. I think the way I see all of my educational experiences is that it continues to build a broad perspective of all of the different pieces that might feed into an issue or you know a problem that you're addressing. And I think really what I got out of all of my educational experiences is critical thinking skills. More, not necessarily the content, although there was pieces of it maybe that I drew drew upon, but it was more how do you approach. Um, analyzing something, critical thinking skills, how do you bring together, you know, different kinds of perspectives, how do you create a compelling, um, you know, argument uh, to move something forward. So I think that that was through all of my education, it's, you know, having to write and, and present information and do the analysis and, and that sort of thing, and, and the research aspect. Those are the things that really continue to um, provide value back, not necessarily the specific content, because I wasn't necessarily focusing on one set set content area in the way that other people might okay. might have. So in 96, you actually left Harvard Pilgrim and you went to work for the American Association of Health Plans in Washington, D.C. How did that opportunity come about and what is the American Association of Health Plans and what did you do for them? So... My husband, uh, uh, when he finished medical school, he had a commitment to the Army um, for two of the years. And so the uh, Army decided that they wanted to send him to do his internship at Walter Reed um, Medical Center in D.C. Mm -hmm. So we went to D.C. And, you know, I, I... through a connection with one of the leaders on the senior team at Harvard, which was ended up being Harvard Pilgrim, now Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, connected me with the vice president of medical affairs at American Association of Health Plans, which is really the trade association for um, health insurance plans. And they do a lot of things, conferences, they put together policy statements, um, they do uh, pull together national level advisory councils on a variety of topics. At least when I was there, those were the sort of things that they were doing. And so given my interest in and sort of skill set in terms of the research and the ability to analyze and put together position papers and that kind of thing, um, the connection was made with that individual at American Association of Health Plans. And so I 
got the job there doing that. And so I continued to do the same sort of work when I was there, but on a much broader national level. And so, you know, supporting things like um, a consumer advisory council where you had various national level organizations, health insurance leadership, provider group uh, coming together to talk about issues pertinent to consumers and how they um, access healthcare services or what do they think about their insurance and that. And so I think that that gave me just an entree into a higher level policy discussion, higher level understanding of nationally what, you know, who the stakeholders are and what's going on and just, just gave me that broader perspective. Yeah. That sounds like valuable experience. Yeah. And being in DC, I think is a worthwhile experience for anyone. I think understanding how legislation and policy and how, um, you know, all of the pieces work together. Uh, and obviously right now we're seeing, you know, with the Affordable Care Act, I mean, just the, the um, importance of understanding how this all comes to be, what are the pieces of it, being able to read legislation and being able to apply that and what, is the, how do you, what does it mean to the organization, I think, is incredibly important today. In 1997, you returned to Massachusetts and you did some consulting for a few years. Then you joined the Provider Service Network in 1998, where you held a series of jobs culminating in the Director of Business Operations and Development. Uh, What is uh, the Provider Service Network and and what did you do for them? So Care Group was uh, an organization that was formed when Beth Israel and Deaconess Hospitals merged uh, back in the 90s, I think it was. And the Provider Service Network originally was called Care Group Provider Service Service Network, was kind of an offshoot of that. And it was really the risk contracting arm of of, um, the um, Care Group Network. And so they, Care Group Provider Service Network negotiated on behalf of these organizations with the three major payers, specifically though for the risk contracting. So each of the organizations, uh, for example, Beth Israel Deaconess Physicians Organization and the Medical Center, they had other contracts and they had their own local um, local organizational infrastructure and, and physician uh, group, et cetera. But they came together with other organizations um, specifically for the risk contracting in, in the 90s. And so what this group did was we were also kind of a medical services organization where we delivered services to help manage that risk. So it's very much kind of deja vu to the kind of work that we're doing now with accountable care organizations in a way um, in terms of providing data analytics, um, a warehouse, data warehousing type stuff, medical management, supportive services, disease, you know, that sort of thing. Um, we also provided a pharmacy management program where they had pharmacists that would go out and provide um, some support out in the offices. And then all of the contracting services, the financial reporting, all of those things that go along with it. They also offered um, some shared resources uh, around credentials, so a credentials verification organization, um, educational programs and that, and that, all of those various pieces that would help to organizations to manage risk. 
And so my role was really reporting to the chief operating officer, and who was really another really important mentor for me, and really providing support to all of the operational pieces, um, and also taking on more of the business operations, so things like supplies and purchasing and human resources and communication. And at times, if there was gaps in leadership, I might fill in at one point, uh, oversaw credentialing. And, and so really just provided that um, administrative piece of the picture. But again, really got a chance to be on the ground level of a developing organization and really learning from her a lot about managing, um, managing effectively managing people, you know, sort of a growth mindset and using that when managing um, people that reported to her and really kind of bringing together just, again, growing an organization from when I started, I think it was probably less than 20 people. When I left, there was over 200. So just a lot of a lot of uh, operational exposure. Wow, what a great opportunity to be in, in at the ground you know, at the start and, right. and rise up with it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You talked about risk contracting. What yep. does that mean? It means when you are taking on sports, the financial and the clinical risk for a population. So you sort of manage against a benchmark, and if you spend more than the benchmark, then you might have to, you know, write a. It, it's it's a collaborative relationship with a payer, and it's basically taking on more of the risk which traditionally might be held by the payer, and so it can take on a variety of of forms. Um, you know, for example, now it's more of a shared savings arrangement where we have different benchmarks that we're trying to meet, and if we if our you know, our actual costs are less than that benchmark, then we share in those savings with um, the payer, the, you know, the, the, the insurer, in this case, Medicare. And it can be any, and then it could be more of a capitation where you're paid a pool of money um, and, you know, you're taking on the risk for managing that population and being able to sort of manage to that budget. So following your time at uh, the Provider Service Network, you came here to Concord Hospital in yep. 2005 to be the Director of Program Development, a position that you continue to hold today in addition to your role as Executive Director of the New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners, a role that we'll come to in a minute. But be before we talk about your job, can we talk a little bit about Concord Hospital? As I understand it, it's part of the Capital Region Healthcare Charitable Health Delivery System committed to the concept of community-based healthcare. And it's the parent company to Concord Hospital, Concord Regional Visiting Nurse Association, and Riverbend Community Mental Health. So can you tell me a little more about what is what is Capital Region and kind of the hospital itself? So so it's just it's just that. It's really kind of the parent company of, of all of those uh, organizations. And each organization, it, it, they remain their own separate organizations. They all have their own boards and you know, okay. and that sort of thing. But I think they really come together to, um, and certainly more, it's even more interest uh, in working very more tightly together in an integrated fashion based on the direction we're going towards value. So I think it will continue to evolve, but at the moment it's sort of, um, uh, is it- So it's three distinct it's, organizations. That come together come through together. a parent organization, yeah. but they each okay. have their own boards and, their, and, that, and that sort of accountability. Okay. So Concord, Hospital is is again just a is a community hospital based in Concord, New Hampshire. Um, our total primary service area is it's mainly it's Merrimack County and then some of the the other towns um, on the border of Merrimack County. 
Um, and it also includes uh, a Concord Hospital Medical Group, which is all of the employed physicians. Okay. Um, but there's also additional independent providers that, um, you know, are on medical staff at Concord Hospital Medical Group um, in, okay. in a variety of, of specialties, including Dartmouth-Hitchcock Clinic um, in Concord is also uh, on the medical staff here. And um, So you have about 255 um, primary and specialty providers. Yep. What's the ratio of primary to specialty? I mean, do you know off the top of your head? Um, I think it's, last time I looked, although I'm not 100% sure, I think it's about 55% specialty, 45% primary care. But that could have shifted. That was, that's a little bit of an old number. Okay. And I know, uh, but but I think it's, it's a somewhere in the realm of 50-50. Okay. And you have a number of centers of excellence that uh, operate here. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Sure. So we certainly have several centers of excellence, cancer, cardiac, orthopedics, and urology. And those, those certainly um, draw from more of a regional market versus someone who is, you know, in, just involved with the primary care. It's going to be, you know, kind of more locally um, oriented. But they, they're very innovative. They offer some incredibly innovative technology and draw people just from not even beyond New Hampshire, Maine, et cetera. So I think that do a tremendous job. Okay. So as the director of program development, where do you fit into the hospital leadership structure? So my title now is actually executive director of accountable care. Okay. So both for, so okay. it's sort of, it's, it's, it's recently. It's absorbed both. Right. Okay. So um, it, it really absorbs both. And so half of my time is spent working on New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners and very much in a, more of an external role, although obviously ties to the work that we're doing at Concord Hospital. And then the other half, um, and, and that half is really paid for by contributions from all of the members and participants in the ACO. And then the other half is really spent on Concord specifically, okay. um, working on population health initiatives, with our new physician advisor for population health, as well as our CMO, and all various members, other just it, it's really a system level position. Where when I say system, I'm talking about our local system, Capital Region Healthcare. So doing a lot of work with the with the the Visiting Nurses Association, doing a lot of work with River Bend Community Mental Health, working a lot obviously in um, our practices and tying it all together um, across, you know, kind of the whole, the whole system. And so uh, the two really go hand in hand because what we're doing with accountable care, and I know we're going to talk about accountable care and medical home and all that kind of stuff, but really the work in the accountable care directly links up to our strategy around population health. Okay. All right. How do you, how do you feel your prior positions prepared you for your current role as executive director of you know, I think it, 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 I hate to sound redundant, but it really is, is continuing to build on the critical thinking and the analytic skills, having that systems level perspective, which I get it, it built over time in terms of, you know, the national exposure, the, the, having the insurance side understanding, have the provider side understanding, you know, hospital side. So really being able to, to sort of bring together that system thinking. Uh, certainly, my project management planning skills, having to do a lot of just kind of bringing people together, keep you know putting together priorities and next steps, keeping tasks on you know on hand, facility with data, starting way back when, 
huge, huge deal, being able to take data, turn it into information that people can take action on our informed decision-making, presenting compelling information and evidence to support a direction is a huge skill set that I continue to work on, but, but certainly um, all of the work prior to being, you know, the role that I'm in now prepared me to, to do that more effectively. Cool. Um, and then I think the final thing is really communication, being able to take complex ideas and the regulations and the landscape and all that. It's very complicated for a lot of people. It's hard to understand. People don't get it. <laughs> you know, you, you talk about population health or you talk about various pieces of it and people kind of look at you with a blank stare. And I think it's just creating that um, relevance, you know, to the work that they're doing and being able to, to kind of create simple, compelling messages is, is something that I work on, but also I've had to hone over the years in the work that I do. Okay. Um, so to come up to, to today uh, and your current position, in 2010, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, usually referred to as the ACA or by critics, Obamacare, passed. So taking a, a charitable view, uh, uh, what would you say are the intentions of the law? So I think that it really is about value and that um, it, it, when, you know, you might hear the term out there, triple aim, which really has to do with improving costs. So if you look at step back a minute and talk about well, why did this come to be? What, what drove the development of this, of this particular um, legislation? And you really, so we talk internally about the triple, you know, the triple problem. Okay. And that you have, you know, unsustainable growth in cost. And I don't think anyone would, you know, we know that we're, we're a really expensive health system and everyone knows it when we they see United States, United not, not States, conquered. Yeah. Everybody. We being United States yeah. and percentage increase in premiums year over year. And if you're buying health insurance, you're like, wow, I can't believe how much money I have to spend on this. And, you know, you think about a school budget and, you know, they they have one person that ends up having a major, you know, illness or, or what have you, all of a sudden that comes back in the school budget that you're voting on at your town hall. <laughs> and the healthcare cost is increasing. It's a big portion of the school budget. So people can really understand when you begin to see the broad implications of healthcare costs and that we all really have a role to play in that. So I think unsustainable cost growth and Medicare will go bankrupt. And so we have to, uh, that, that was another obviously big reason. So we need to address that. And then you think about quality and we basically, again, there's a, a, a chart that a lot of people have seen where it basically shows that we pay more for worse outcomes. Our mortality is, you know, worse than some, than other places where they're paying much less for their health care. And so um, we're not necessarily getting a good return on our investment. And much of that investment is really in acute sick care. It's not in the prevention and the wellness. Most of it is spent on acute care. Yeah. Um, and, and Speaking to the, to the chart you're talking about, I think uh, looking at it, the I recall seeing we have a life expectancy in the United States of about 78. Right. And which is about the same as the Czech Republic, which spends a quarter of what we That's we're exactly it. Here, I think is exactly it. Example, right? And many of the other developed nations uh, spend 30, 40% less and have higher life expectancies. So. Exactly. And if you looked at a scatter graph and you put quality, uh, mortality on one side and you put cost per member per year for healthcare on the x axis, the United States is sitting way off to the right 
in the lower right-hand corner. And everyone else is sort of in this cluster, more in the middle, you know, maybe on a spectrum. But, but there's, it's just when you see that visual of how far out of whack we are, you, you realize that um, there's an issue. And it certainly, you know, there's been reports, Institute of Medicine report um, that, that has come out and, and everyone is aware of that. And then I would, you know, add patient experience is not always what you would hope for. And so I think that that is, and, and everyone has their own story about that. Maybe it's you were bounced around from office to office, or maybe you information, you know, you didn't really know what you were supposed to do when you left, when you left the office, or maybe, you know, it was just the experience of having 20 different people come in your room at one time asking you the same question. Um, whatever it is, I think people, people may have different ideas about um, what their experience has been from their perspective or the, the scheduling of appointments and, you know, calling up and getting the um, telephone service where you, you know, press one, press two, plus, th- you know, press one again, press two, and then you finally may get someone, leave a message, someone may get back to you and, oh, you have an appointment in three weeks. What other industry is that acceptable? Right. And so I think that we have a lot of opportunity to improve patient experience. And then I think if you think about the population, the health of a population, and I'm sure everyone has seen, maybe you haven't seen, and if you haven't, you should go look at it. But there, uh, at a national level, there's a, a, a map of the United States, and it's a kind of a hot-spotting um, map, for lack of a better word. But it shows basically the increasing rate of obesity as, as a country state by state. And if you show that in rapid succession, and you go back, and you just show that over 20 years, or even 10 years, it's astounding. Um, the increasing rate of, of obesity. And so thinking about the health of a population and thinking about all of these lifestyle behavior issues that we haven't been able to um, really meaningful, meaningfully impact. But, you know, a lot of work is being done, a lot of important work is being done, but there's still significant issues in terms of of the health of, of a population. So those that's kind of the triple aim. They talk about improving cost, quality, uh, and patient, and um, managing the health of a population, or you know, population health. And this is Don Berwick out of... Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And then your triple, what was it, triple? Triple problem. Triple problem. And then I think the fourth thing which Dave Green, our CMO, really talks about is, is really, and so he says it's a quadruple aim, and that's really not addressed in the Affordable Care Act per se is really provider satisfaction and the fact that there's tremendous burnout, there's tremendous fatigue with um, on many levels and stress. And so um, we, you know, the way we talk about it is when we're talking about health care, we also have to include the health and the wellness of the people that are delivering that care. And so it's not, you know, there's sort of not a separate group that it's fine. We all need to do this for everyone else, but for them, you know, I think we have to think about that as well. And so he talks a lot about that. And there's a lot of discussion about burnout and, you know, joy in medicine and, and that sort of thing that um, I think is incredibly important discussion. One of the common themes of, of the programs created by the ACA is the intent to increase value, as, as you said. What would you say are the larger programs enacted by the ACA to help increase? improve value and how does how is your position kind of working with those uh, those themes yeah so i mean i think it's it's about access it's coverage and access and affordability so uh, certainly um, reducing the uninsured rate by expanding insurance coverage through a variety of means looking at how uh, reducing the cost of health care both for individuals and for the society as a whole 
things like minimum standards for insurance benefits, coverage of pre-existing conditions. So those sort of increasing access, affordability, and coverage. And in, in terms of the work with New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners, we think a lot about access because when people get access to needed services, then that hopefully helps um, prevent, you know, progression of a situation to the point where they need acute services, which is not in anyone's interest um, in terms of from a cost or just overall well-being. And so certainly the access piece there and, and, and certainly the whole concept of right place, right time, you know, right, right care um, sort of piece. But what the explicitly tying quality and cost, um, it, it, when you think about what the Affordable Care Act really put into place was really this focus on alternative payment mechanisms. So things like accountable care organizations, medical homes, bundled payments, all of the things that they, um, they've, various models and things that they've come out with. And then they also talk about quality penalties and quality rewards. And so there's a number of different things. A lot of that you might have heard about were focusing on reducing readmissions, re, you know, to, to hospitals. Um, and then rewards attached to doing certain things for quality. So improving depression screening or improving immunization rates and in a variety of, of other pieces um, that fall into, into that. And so right now, I think um, what's occurring is Medicare said, you know, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts right now in terms of quality and that there's there, and also reporting requirements. And so there's meaningful use, which is tied to using your medical record. And there's quality, uh, physician quality reporting. And there's um, value-based purchasing. And there's a bunch of things. And so now they're trying to kind of sync it all up, that quality piece, and tie it with the alternative payment mechanisms as sort of a one-stop shop. So the example is we, the organizations participating in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which is the program that that New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners is in, if you are participating in an ACO, in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, and you complete the reporting, quality reporting that's required to continue to participate in the program, then you will effectively take care of all of these other things that you had to previously do independently. So it's kind of trying to bring together um, and, and, and to explicitly tie quality and cost and really think about the triple aim um, perspective is at least in the in the Medicare shared savings program is that we are required to report and perform on quality. There's benchmarks that are set. We're required to perform and how much shared savings we would get if we were actually able to get shared savings is tied back to our performance on quality. So we might we would you know if we were did 100 percent we we performed at the highest level we would get 50 percent of whatever shared savings we achieved, the other 50% would go back to Medicare. If we performed at you know, 80% on all of our quality measures, then we would get 40% essentially of, of the, the shared savings. So they're really, it's, it's not utilization management, it's not cutting costs without any reference point to what's the, the outcome, what's the quality. And, and a lot of the, the measures that, we're, that we, we have to perform under in the Medicare program are increasingly being come, uh, becoming more and more tied to outcomes. So instead of just depression screening, it's depression remission. Okay. Instead of, um, you know, and, and so that's a, that's a good example of how they're transitioning to more of outcomes-based 
type measures. Okay, and you mentioned utilization management. That's kind of uh, something that came out of the managed care revolution of the 90s and got a lot of bad press where it kind of turned into more it was about denying care right. rather than ensuring quality. Right. But you're saying that the, the new approach is different from that. It is different because if you think about it, you could you could say, oh no, you're not going to get that cert, you, you're not going to get that care. Maybe that's something that's really needed um, that ultimately would avoid a hospitalization or avoid an emergency room visit um, by not getting that particular service you know, it, it, it may entirely backfire. It may be short term, you may have a, a reduction in cost, but longer term, it could end up in, you know, a much higher cost and a, and a worse outcome for the individual. So, it, um, you know, I think it takes kind of everyone involved in the system to think about um, what's needed. I think there's, you know, you certainly hear a lot of data about duplication of services and waste and I think those are all of the things how can we work together as a system how can we communicate how can we make sure that people are getting services that they need in the location that they need it to be most effective and so those are the kinds of things that we're talking about versus like nope we're just gonna you know sort of not provide that service or right. you're gonna have to go through 50 million hoops to get that service and hopefully you'll just give up right before you get there yeah right okay so Following passage of the ACA, Concord became involved with an ACO. So in 2012, you were given the additional title of Executive Director for the New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners. What is the New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners and what's your role been so far? Sure. So um, New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners is a not-for-profit organization. It's a limited liability um, corporation based in Concord, New Hampshire, founded in 2012 with the express intent to participate in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which again is an offshoot of the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act defined, you know, that Medicare was going to put together, you know, accountable care organizations and this is one of the programs um, that came out of it. And so what we did was bring together four different, it, originally it was two organizations, it was Concord and all of their employed providers, and Elliot and all of their employed providers. And it's important that it's, it's not just hospitals that can participate unless the hospital employs all of the, the physicians, the providers, because the population that gets assigned or attributed to the ACO has to do with the provision of primary care services largely. And so um, in 2012, we had Concord and Elliott come together um, to participate in this program. And I think we were one of 112 organizations nationally doing that. So we were on the forefront, you know, but we said, hey, this is something we've got to, we've got to, you know, we want to explore. We see the writing on the wall. We see that, um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of pressures that providers are beginning to feel that we we see the direction that Medicare is headed we all of the tri triple problem stuff we see all of that so we you know we want to jump on and and take advantage of this what we saw really as a learning opportunity largely okay. and and now the Elliot is is in Manchester and yes we've I've done a podcast down there uh, so listeners can 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 check that out as well but it's relatively close you're what about 30 minutes apart yep so we are and yeah, I think it's about 30 minutes apart right in Manchester and um, kind of similar, you know, community 
profile somewhat um, in, in size and everything. So uh, we don't have much of an overlap between kind of the market area that we both that we serve, but we also had a relationship that started through Granite Health uh, Network. Now I think it's just called Granite Health, which is uh, kind of a federation of several health systems in New Hampshire that came together, you know, to do a variety of things. But certainly there was a relationship that had developed through our participation in Granite Health. And that really, you know, the participation in Medicare was really served well by that. And so we were together through just the two of us through 2013. At the end of 2013, two other Granite Health organizations expressed interest in you know, wanted to see how we did and then said, hey, you know, we think we'd be interested in joining. And so in January of 2014, Southern New Hampshire Health System and Wentworth Douglas Health System joined the ACO. So now four participating organizations and about 37,000 Medicare beneficiaries, which are associated with our ACO. Wow. So Southern New Hampshire is in Nashua. Southern New Hampshire is in Nashua, and they have a medical group called Foundation Medical Partners. Um, And Wentworth Douglas is in Dover on the seacoast. So there's not a whole lot of overlap between the different service areas at each of those organizations. But we were all facing the same kinds of challenges and, and interest in figuring out where where things were headed from a from a value perspective, value based care, population health, and so we felt like there was a great opportunity to learn. To have this additional structure with a Medicare program to continue to learn and better understand what competencies we needed to move forward. Okay. And so Dover is about 45 minutes to an hour away. It's, it's, yeah, an from, hour. From and from Concord, Nashua is probably 45 minutes so away. So everybody's kind of within a, a range of about an hour's drive. Yes. Yes. Just to give the listeners a, who aren't familiar with New Hampshire's geography kind of where we're at and how, how, how these all kind of sit with respect to each other. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the kind of the, the process of establishing th- this organization and um, the mechanics of that from, from your perspective as, uh, as the executive director. We had to go through a pretty comprehensive application process for the Medicare Shared Savings Program. It was an overall, you know, we had to define how would we do care coordination and how would we do evidence-based medicine and how would we do this and that and the other thing and what's our governance structure. And so it had to be a separate legal entity that had its own board of, of you know, a board essentially that had oversight for delivery and, and execution in this program. And so we had to develop that whole legal structure. And we actually had to do this for our application. We had to have everything in place and submit that, um, or at least a sense of what we were, gonna, we were going to do. And so part of that was establishing a leadership team. We had, we had to identify, a, you know, there's certain requirements based on the, on the regulations. Um, you had to have a minimum number of beneficiaries. You had to have a legal you know, entity that w- could re- receive data, could receive shared savings and distribute it out. You had to have uh, certain positions in place, compliance, and you had to have a medical director, and you had to you know, have someone who had overall accountability or you know, a, a CEO. And so we identified, basically pulled from our existing organizations, putting putting that leadership in place. And so I really was the point person on putting that application together. And so in talking to Mike Green, who was the CEO, uh, which is Concord Hospital's prior CEO um, up until two years ago, and my boss at the time, and sort of said, you know, you're going to need someone who really functions as really the big project manager on this, program manager on this. And so that was a role that I took on, given 
the, um, the role that I'd played to date. And then we had uh, identified a medical director, which actually ended up being Concord's medical director, uh, Dave Green. And then we would pull compliance support from at the time, initially from, from Elliot, and, and sort of went about setting up an organizational structure based on what we thought we needed. So thinking again, sort of from the high level, this is about quality and cost, and there's certain things we had to have in place from a quality assurance perspective. It was very clear we had to have that. So we, you know, we put into place an organizational structure, committee structure with representation as well as our board. And then the other, the other requirement we had to have is we had to have a Medicare beneficiary that sat on our board. They, you know, Medicare had sort of said they want to provide that. They want someone who provided that perspective and checks and balances in terms of the work that we were doing. And so we had to identify, we actually identified someone from Manchester and someone from Concord and to sit on that as well. And so really initially it was really, it was reading through the regulations. We had to, you know, identify where, what were the potential how were we going to ensure we were in compliance with the regulations? What did we need to do to organizationally figure out what we were doing? How were we going to receive data? What were we going to do with that data? Just sorting out, even understanding what needed to happen. And then the other piece, other big piece was really being able to report on the quality measures. 33 quality measures, 22 of them are data we'd have to pull from our medical record, and then the other ones were based on a patient satisfaction survey and, and, and some claims-based measures that Medicare delivered on our behalf. But we had to have 22 measures that we had to, from two different organizations on a sample of patients, be able to pull together and submit to Medicare on an annual basis. And now four organizations coming together based on a sample of all four come together and submit as one entity to Medicare. Medicare saw us as one entity, despite the fact that we're four independent organizations, you know, again, with autonomy and with, you know, not, we're not integrated as a, as a clinical network. Okay. So as you were saying, you have four hospitals participating in the ACO. What is the relationship? You're saying they have autonomy. They continue to function as separate entities. They share ownership of the ACO, I'm assuming. Is that, is that the... I mean, I think it's not really ownership. I think there's an equal, 20, you know, sort of even split in contributing okay. to support the, whatever is needed, the infrastructure, which is, uh -huh. we have a very modest budget. Okay. I think it's, you know, it's $400,000. The majority okay. of that is data analytics, and then it's a portion of my time, and then there's a few other assorted pieces. It's, it's, it's a pretty small... Yeah infrastructure so but everyone contributes equally and if we were to have shared savings everyone would get an equal distribution out of those shared savings okay. um, you know based on we're kind of coming together as a collective and so but each the challenge is it's really a federated approach you know meaning we we come together we say oh these are our shared goals these are our shared principles we know we have a mission of triple aim because every Accountable care organization, that's really what they're focused on. And we knew that we would really have to effectively use our data and we'd have to build care coordination. But it also was really clear that it's not just about Medicare. We're coming together specifically with for to oversee our um, performance in the Medicare program. But Medicare is not, it's not a one strategy thing that that organizations are doing this is across all of the very the all of the pairs this is this is much broader this is the work that's going on with granite health with Cigna accountable care this is the work that 
um, you know, with the new um, insurance plan that Granite Health and Tufts Health Plan created, Tufts Freedom Plan, okay. that this is about a broader strategy to move to value. So I think that the work in the Medicare is really important, but, the, but my job is not a position of direct oversight. I can't go in there and say, you're going to do this or whatever. Okay. I can only say, this is what I think we need to move our goals forward. And oh, by the way, this also syncs up with this, 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 and this, and this and really trying to influence. It's a position of influence. And so it, it, it really is, um, you know, there's a connection, but I think there's a collective commitment that we're all kind of moving in the direction of value and that, com- that there's, that in my role, that I'm really ensuring that I'm providing the service and the value back to them to help them, not only with this Medicare program, which is direct, I'm directly responsible for, but also to ensure that you know this hopefully really goes across many initiatives. So the ACO was created, the New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners was created first and foremost to take advantage of this Medicare yes. savings program. Yes. But private insurers are now also moving in the same direction and Absol- expecting you to do the same kind of, of work. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so, and that's not being done through that you know, payer relationship or collaboration with payers, private insurers, isn't happening through New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners. Okay. New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners is solely focused on the Medicare population, the Medicare program. Okay. But obviously, it shouldn't be a silo, you know, it shouldn't be sort of seen as, ooh, you know, just off to the side and doesn't line up with anything else that organizations are, are working on. It has to be, you know, I see this as, an, as sort of a, a building momentum helping to build momentum in the, in the transition to value-based care. And we're part of that momentum. We're part of feeding into that and helping to create the value and not only to organizations as they transition, but ultimately back to our community and back to the individuals that we serve and, and back to the, the providers in, in terms of the work that they do and, and helping them to do their work as you know uh, most effectively as possible given the changing landscape. Okay. So, it's it's really not a standalone, but it is a standalone legal entity, but it's not a standalone strategy. Okay. And you said there are already other private insurers that are already kind of looking at an ACO type arrangement. Are you, is, is there a long-term strategy that New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners would be the response from these four hospitals? Or is it, are you saying that you kind of organizationally, everyone is learning that this is how it's going to work? And it won't necessarily be New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners, but Concord Hospital. Yeah, I can't. Or yeah, I, I don't know if I could tell you exactly what it's okay. going to look like. I think yeah. there's a lot of work being done, you know, again, at Granite Health in terms of the Tufts Freedom Plan. There's a relationship between, you know, the, the, organization, the Granite Health Network and then um, Tufts Health Plan to create that that um, insurance plan and and products related to that. And then there's a lot, I think it is a time I would say when organizations are looking to do a lot of partnering and collaboration with a variety of partners and collaborators. And so I don't see this, I see this as sort of almost like diversifying your portfolio Um, in a way, you know, you're sort of looking at all of the various things that will come together ultimately so that you you have a sustainable plan when you when you move into to um, value more into value based care. We're still pretty much paid on fee for service, right. and I think that we're all we we are learning. But I don't. I think the pace of learning 
will accelerate as we, you know, certainly with Medicare kind of putting a, a stake in the, you know, the sand and, and saying in three years we are going to have, I think it's 80% of reimbursements, you know, tied to value in some way or, or alternative payment mechanisms or, or maybe it's 50%. But, but they've been very clear. We are moving. That's where we're moving is to value-based reimbursement. And so I think that we have three years to sort of really get ready. And I think that that will require a lot of different organizations coming together. And it, it's not all just going to be through New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners. But I think we can, we can certainly play a role in, in convening people and facilita- facilitating conversation and problem solving and meeting quality measures and things that we need to do that will extend out to other kinds of, of arrangements and facility with data. I think there's a lot, a lot that we can do to really help to pinpoint. And I think Medicare in particular is, in New Hampshire, is a particularly, and everywhere, we're, we're aging everywhere, but in, in right. New Hampshire, I mean, I, it's an aging population. And so certainly this Medicare represents a large portion of the population that's served for all of the health systems. So, so ensuring that we're doing uh, what we need to to be effective in, in delivering services to that population in particular, aging in particular. Yeah. Um, I, aging population, I think, is critically important. In, uh, across the country, Medicare represents 50% or more right. of most hospitals' revenues. Definitely. So when Medicare, when the, gov- when the U.S. government says, Medicare will now do it this way, people every- stand up. Everybody has to respond in some way, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's so I think it's, it, it all kind of feeds in together, and that's really when I when I think I always think about all of these different things going on, and how does it ultimately kind of sync up so that you know the arrows are all going in the same direction um, to to help move us. And you mentioned the, that the government is uh, going to require Medicare uh, or physicians and organizations participating in in Medicare to get to a value-based payment mechanism, and I think that's a result of the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015, and it uh, requires us to go by 2019, I think is what you're it's, making reference to. So. Well, there's, there's both. Or I mean, okay. so this is, um, yeah, so the, the MACRA, the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act, which was passed in, in April of 2015, really speaks to um, how, how providers are paid, and it, it it talks about I don't know how much you want me to go into the Medicare sustainable growth rate, but which is basically a method used by Medicare to control um, spending by Medicare on physician services, and so it's really mentioned sure that the yearly increase in the expense per Medicare beneficiary doesn't exceed the growth in the GDP. Okay. And so, gross um, domestic product. Right, yeah. gross domestic product. And so every year CMS would send a report to Congress on the previous year's total expenditures and what they'd set as a target. And if the total was greater than the target, then the physician payments would be reduced the next year. Um, every year on March 1st, a new physician fee schedule was set but Congress could decide if they wanted to adjust it or if they wanted to suspend um, the physician payments. And so they, they did this every year, it was called a doc fix. Yeah. And so this law basically permanently fixed that doc fix. And so that's why that it, it gave a more predictable patient-oriented patient scheme um, and, and repealed kind of this this, sustainable this, growth this, rate. This, so this kind of ties The sustainable growth rate thing had, had been passed in what, 2002? And basically every year, from then on, Congress 
didn't allow it to happen. Right, and so it was this whole thing every year, every year, and it was unpredictable, and yeah. so now there's, there's predictability to it. It also explicitly ties payment to quality. And so there's, so starting in 2020, they sort of physicians can choose from two different payment tracks, and so one of them has to do with um, a merit-based incentive payment program, sort of for providers that are not in the alternative pay, any alternative payment mechanism. And then the other one is really for professionals participating in an alternative payment mechanism, which would be Medicare Shared Savings Program, patient-centered medical home bundled payments, any model under the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center, CMMI, and other kinds of demonstrations. And so they basically are trying to really, again, kind of sync up initiatives so that there's not reporting on a yearly basis to 10, 20 different, you know, whatever it is, entities. They're trying to sort of streamline it. Okay. And, and this, again, is primarily a, or is a Medicare initiative, but it does represent somewhere around half of your of the average hospital's revenues. Right. But with Medicare kind of taking the lead on this, a lot of the private sector insurers are also kind of following the same and, and taking advantage of this effort by Medicare's. Yeah, I mean, they're taking the lead. And I think there's, you know, there's a there's just a growing momentum. There's um, recently they created, I think it was called the... HC plan, healthcare. It's a, it's a group of, of providers that are coming together and saying, you know, we see the direction things are going and that we're going to work towards certain goals to move our care delivery model into more of these alternative payment mechanisms. And so there's, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's definitely, it's in the news where they're talking about in, you know, same kind of timeline, in three years, we'll have 50% of our payment or 80% of our payment. There was one, I think it was Aetna, possibly who it exactly mirrored Medicare's timeline. So so okay. when Medicare came out with that statement, we're going to, this is our goal, there was a lot of other commercial uh, payers that insurers that came out and said, we're going we're gonna to be on the same timeline. So there's just more aggressive movement toward that end. Okay. You have, you, I believe you mentioned you have 36,000 beneficiaries whose health you're now, you being the New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners, is, are now getting kind of credit or blame for either improving or failing to improve, how, how did those people come to be covered by uh, your ACO? So there is um, an attribution methodology. So basically there's a way that they are, quote, assigned. It's actually not, there's no change in the benefits. There's no change in how beneficiaries access care, what they pay as a copay or a deductible, who they can see, who they can't see. There's no, it's none of that. So their benefit stays so the same. So I'm 67 years old and Medicare eligible and live in Manchester or Concord, I wouldn't, I'm not going to see any change as a result of this. You're not going to see any change in terms of what you pay or who, how you, you know, there's not going to be any limits or, you know, constraints or okay. changes to how you, you know, um, take advantage of the benefits that you, that you have or take advantage of the insurance coverage. But so it really is about the providers participating by virtue of a tax ID that they bill through. And so... The way that Medicare assigns individuals to the ACL for the ACO to now be accountable for that population is based on kind of where do they get most of their primary care services. And so majority of that, they have a two-step methodology, and it largely has to do with primary care physicians. And I say physicians because they actually did not count advanced practice practitioners like so nurse, nurse practitioners, practitioners or um, PAs. Um, PAs or what have you were not counted in that first step. 
And so the majority of the people that are assigned are based on they've had a visit with a primary care physician that's associated with the tax ID that's participating in the accountable care organization. And then there's a second step where they can also be assigned based on if there's no primary care that they've really had, you know, the plurality of the visits with, the higher proportion of visits with, and, and but they have had a visit with a specialist or in the case of a, a nurse practitioner or a PA, they've, they've had a visit with them in addition to if it's with that nurse practitioner, they also have had at least one visit with any kind of physician, um, then they could also be assigned. But that's a very small portion of it. So it might be someone who has been seeing a cardiologist, you know, and not going to primary care, maybe just seeing a cardiologist. And so they're by virtue of that. It could also be, for example, in our area where someone comes in and they have an urgent care visit. And by virtue of that's the only primary care service that they received is this urgent care visit they're assigned. But there's also something, um, you'll hear the term churn, where it's basically talking about, you know, there's a stable core of people that will start off in your accountable care organization and they'll remain, you know, because they, this is, this is where they're coming for their care. And then there's another portion of the population that will rotate out and sometimes in and out and in and out and in and out, depending on how they access or kinds of services that they access. And so about 75% of our population is a stable core and about 25% is kind of rotating in and out, maybe out never to come back, maybe in, out. And so we, we every month we get a new updated list of uh, individuals that have now been assigned based on their assignment methodology. So it becomes really important the relationship with primary care becomes really important because it's, it's to the benefit of our organization to have people stay with us because then we can provide that continuity of care. We will have a full understanding of what their, all of their issues are, that sort of thing. So we really want to sort of try and keep that, keep people, you know, coming back and, and part of our organization so that we can really provide long-term services, not just one hit fragment, but, but really that long-term, if, if it makes sense and if they live in the area and that sort of thing. But to the extent they live in the area and continuing to um, access some level of service, we're looking for that continuity. Okay. You've talked about primary care. Most people kind of know what that is, but, but can you give me a, a quick explanation of what's primary care and how does the role of primary care change when operating within an ACO? So... I see primary care as almost that of a quarterback and not, you know, in a way, um, it's, it's like a quarterback role. It's, it's, it's at the core of coordination and holistic perspective on, for, you know, for individuals, for patients. And um, it really, primary care is, is a first point of contact in many cases. It's a principal point of continuing care. It's, so it really is, is a continuity of care within the system, and then it just really helps to coordinate services with specialists, with other kinds of services, home health, et cetera, so that it, it becomes a coordinated care plan. And so when you think about, when people talk about medical home, patient-centered medical home. And that's another term that's exactly. come out of the ACA. Um, yeah, and that really is about a team-based, so it's really saying, okay, the, the, the patient, the individuals at the core, of, you know, they're, they're part of, if you think about it from a football perspective, they're part of every play. I mean, right, it's your health care, you're going to be part of it. But really looking at this as a team-based approach, there's so many different things and there's so many various perspectives and skills that together, you know, as a team come together that really can benefit the individual. So 
for example, we have a new role which is similar to uh, what all the organizations have within our ACO and, and, and really common throughout many organizations is really kind of a nurse navigator or a patient navigator or a care manager that's embedded within the medical home, the primary care team. And their job is to really help the more complex patients. They're, they're higher touch. They're providing an extra layer of support and service to help people that have really complex situations, whether they have a lot of behavioral health, whether they have social needs, you know, whether they have just a multitude of chronic conditions, whatever it is, they're providing that extra layer of support, extra coordination that's needed. And that takes a lot of time. And one individual trying to do all of that work in addition to all of the daily work that, that you go in, maybe you have a cold or maybe you need immunizations or you have wellness visits or whatever it is, that takes a team to sort of help with all of that. So certainly it, it, it's team-based, it's patient-focused, individual-focused, and it's really about creating a culture and a system of wellness and, and really helping to bring all of what's currently more of a fragmented system together as more of a, a coordination, having a foundation for that to do so. So a lot of what the U.S. healthcare system is accused of in terms of generating that extra cost that we were talking about a while back was because it's fragmented. Mm-hmm. What's the strategy then? It, how does that then play into the strategy for generating savings through this ACO structure? So if you think about the the microsystem level is medical home, primary care kind of microsystem. You have a macro level, which really has more to, which has to do with more of the accountable care organization, which is really structured on the idea of coordinating services better, reducing the fragmentation. It's really a systematic approach, looking at prevention and wellness, but also an encouragement, reducing risks and, and all that kind of stuff, but also being more proactive in medical care, wherever people are at in terms of disease or, or health or what have you. And so being more proactive and, and earlier intervention and that sort of thing. And so that's really popular, you know, population health is, is a, more of a macro and ACO is more of a macro. And so I think right away, you could see the benefit of care coordination as a cost savings opportunity. But it's also in terms of particularly if you think about the higher touch for the more complex patients who may end up in your hospital more, your emergency room more, helping them to self-manage, helping them, they have a point of contact, they're not going through you know, a myriad of, of phone calls or they're getting conflicting or confusing information. They have a principal point of contact with their, their team and they understand all of the various pieces. And then there's all sorts of extra support that's provided throughout the system. That they, that they can get access to and link to, but ultimately there's, there's that ability to bring it all together and make sure that people get access to services like behavioral health, which I think if you consider that as an opportunity, integrating that with the care, thinking about palliative services and helping people make really difficult decisions and helping their families come to those decisions. What are palliative services? It's really for people that have a life-limiting illness and they really need to have Again, an extra layer of support in helping them to navigate what it is that they need to best meet the goals that matter to them. So it's really getting at personal goals to people. And so I think if you ever read the book by Atul Gawande, Being Mortal, it yeah. talks a lot about Excellent. there's an, a, treme- a tremendous amount about, you know, the focus in healthcare is about safety. And certainly that's true for older po- elderly population, that it's a lot about, oh, I don't want them to fall. You know, but if you think about, well, what really matters to this person, 
at home is they want to be able to walk around. Well, you're saying, no, you can't walk because you're going to fall. Well, what matters to them is being able to walk. What matters to them is not their safety issue around falling or not falling. So you have to, it's really about kind of creating that quality of life. Whatever time remains, making that the most meaningful time. So there's a team of people that have the expertise, and it includes spiritual care, and it includes um, social work expertise, and it includes physicians and clinical people that have um, expertise in facilitating those conversations and helping that shared decision process and helping people to connect to services in the community that would, could really help them to kind of come to what they, you know, what is their plan and, and put together the pieces that help them to sort of meet their personal goals. Now you're talking about increasing resources, though. This is, you're talking about adding on at this point. So what's the incentive? Why do you have that incentive to spend more? Because it's what I'm hearing as a former comptroller is I'm going to spend more on, on these people. Is that true? And, and what's the incentive for you to do that? Well, I think it's, it, again, right now we're in this straddle position of we're being paid fee for service, so we're being paid on the number of services that we deliver, but we see that, that how we're going to get paid going in the future is, is based on a population. So if you think about the needs of a community, the needs of a population, and you think about all of the various pieces that play into why people go to the emergency room or why people need acute care services, and you think about the ability to maybe help them avoid some of that by providing these additional higher touch supportive services or delivering services in their home, then you begin to understand why we're building up the infrastructure now as we prepare for that transition. And I also would add, it's just kind of, it's, it's the right thing to do for people. Sure. I think for a long time we've put you know, behavioral health off to the side as, as sort of a, a sidebar conversation. And now we're saying, well, wait a minute, that needs to be fully at the table because your depression, your anxiety is impacting your ability to take your medications. It's impacting your ability to self-manage and take care of yourself. So if you don't, looking at just sick care and not considering health care, you're just, you're, you're, you can't possibly impact the total cost. And if you really think about, I don't know if you've seen the um, uh, Health County Rankings, which is a, a report, I think it was done with Robert Wood Johnson, and they, they have this uh, particular model that they talk about. And it really has to do with it has to do with sort of a whole a whole patient aim and so what it talks about is that if you think about the health outcomes for an individual being you know ultimately the way to, they define it is mortality and quality of life what are the factors that drive that health outcome and 20% of that is clinical care the, you know 40% of that is social and economic factors 30% of that is health behaviors, things like tobacco and obesity and things like that. And then a 10% is physical environment, so air quality, water quality, things like that. And so there's so much that happens outside of the healthcare system that we need to begin to make those connections to those services that help people remain in the community for as long as possible for, because it, it's, it's the right thing for them. And it also ultimately has an impact in terms of outcomes and also, um, you know, ultimately um, will in some way help us to, to manage costs. But I think doing the right thing, focusing on what's, you know, focusing on the patient will ultimately translate to 
helping to manage cost and, and getting people involved in decisions about their own health care as well. So what, I, what I'm referring to as additional cost, you're really saying is a, an upfront investment yes. to, to cut off the tail of more clinical care right. and address other needs. Yeah, I mean, front. exactly. So you're, it's really more of a, it's a proactive versus reactive. And we've lived in a really reactive system, very much focused, at least healthcare. You know, it's, it's been focused on sick care. And, and it's been focused, and there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, it, it's not that it was wrong or bad. It's just the way that the, the system has grown. And now I think everyone's saying, well, wait a minute. You know, we need to be thinking more about the broader healthcare. And how do we connect, you know, how do we connect... Um, all of the pieces and thinking about it from a whole person perspective. I mean, as an economist, I see it as, you know, we've had a long history of fee-for-service. That's how you got paid. Absolutely. So that's what grew. That's exactly it. And right. that's what and I'm now saying. now we're shifting away from that. Now we're shifting because people are saying we can't sustain that. We can't sustain this model. Um, and I don't, you know, and they're also beginning to see some other pieces. So they are, are also factoring in. Everyone's had their personal experience of, you know, the story of, well, how did it, you know, what was it like when my mom died? Or, or how did, you know, there, someone has experience with, well, this is what it was like when my brother was diagnosed with, you know, clinical depression. And what did that look like? And is there, and maybe you ask the question, is there a better way to do this? And then you think about how the reimbursement structure is changing and you begin to think about um, how, how this can work differently. But, you know, just this morning talking a lot about, well, what is the quote return on investment? Because the tradition, the return on investment model that we have in place now, doesn't really work. How do you quantify the impact of care coordination? How do you quantify the impact of palliative care? How do you quantify some of the things you're doing? Maybe it's a long-term game that you're playing, you know, or a long-term play that you would be able to see down the road. But um, so we're going to have to reconfigure how we're looking at that and thinking, you know, how being able to provide, because I don't, you can't dismiss the financial piece of this, and you can't dismiss the incentives that people have, and they're real and they're basic stuff that people need to consider. But I think that's all the stuff we're trying to figure out now. And certainly with the Medicare program, we're doing it in a way where we're not having to um, really deal with a lot of risk at this point. So we're continuing to learn, knowing in three years we're going to have that risk, and we, we need to be better at it. Let me ask you, what... So what can the New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners do that's different than a traditional medical care, excuse me, Medicare provider um, that's offering, operating on a fee-for-service? Can you offer different services that typically were not billable? Do you do that because it's addressing other parts of the, of the needs of the patient? Is that something you're looking at? Or, or are you still kind of just hitting on the stuff that's typically been billable for Medicare? No, we're, we're definitely, I think, broadly speaking, um, looking at kind of all of the variety of, organi- of, of opportunities um, and, and thinking again about what does it mean to be ready for where we're headed and what does it mean to deliver value and how are we going to do that in a sustainable way? So certainly when you think about, there's a lot of services you, can, you, could, you could offer, but it's really where do you, where do you see what you know? What is what does your data tell you? What are the needs in the community? What are the what is your data from Medicare? The claims data. What's your clinical data? Where are there gaps in care? Where is there demand that's not being met? What are people telling you they need? What do you see from all of the variety of data sources is cropping up? And certainly, you know, for example, in New Hampshire, and this is not unique to, to our state, is is mental health, you know, behavioral health, substance use, and substance misuse, and so really looking at all of our data, 
creates a compelling, you know, can create a compelling story to say, we need to focus attention here because it's tied to this, this, and this. And until we address, if we don't address this, then, you know, we won't get, we won't get the kind of desired results that we're looking for. And so I think data helps us to identify community needs process we're going through now with the hospital, all of the data and analytics that we're trying to get better at, comparing and contrasting to other organizations. That's one of the, the, out, the, the opportunities we have as a collective is to say, let's look at each other side by side. Wow, you guys are a little different here. There's variations. Why is that? What are you doing? And so we learn from that and we can, we can begin to challenge maybe our assumptions or maybe our hypothesis. Maybe they're not right. And so we go back and we begin to kind of lift up every rock and see what the opportunities are. Um, but at the same time, you know, the conversation this morning was around sort of uh, pilots we're doing with integrated behavioral health was really about fi financial sustainability. Because right now, the work that we're doing, the innovative work we're doing, piloting integration of behavioral health and primary care is largely funded through grants. Okay. So the innovative work we're doing, we're getting that, you know, part of, uh, as a charitable organization, is there's community benefits. And so part of that is helping us do that, or we seek grants from other sources, maybe from the federal government, maybe from local foundations. That's great. That allows us to sort of have a proof of concept and to develop those kind of return on investment impact opportunities um, or, imp or sort of clear impact. But we need to also think about as we continue to sort of have both a foot in fee-for-service and, and moving into some other kinds of pay-for-performance, um, you know, let's make sure that we are looking at what the billable, you know, what, where, where we can bill and, and doing so. And so I think that's a conversation that we're really trying to figure out is, yeah, there's all these services, um, and right now it's, it's part of what we're doing through a variety of funding mechanisms, but ultimately we're going to need to to factor that into how we structure arrangements going forward. And we need to have the proof and the data to support the, the, the importance of including that in, in future arrangements. You've mentioned data a number of times. What data do you actually get from Medicare, CMS, or uh, you, you have, of course, your own data yep. from your respective facilities, but what data are you getting from the federal government about your um, beneficiaries? So we get the claims data for our entire population wherever they so the, receive the those services. So reliant uh, uh, beneficiaries? Correct, and wherever they have had services, which is a little different from what we can get out of our billing system here. So we, we have data that, you know, if someone came for a service, we're gonna bill it and we're gonna have that data here for that. But we don't know when they went, if they went to Mass General or they had emergency services at Laconia or whatever the case may be, we wouldn't necessarily know that. And so by getting all of that data, we begin to see where care is getting, uh, you know, where care is being delivered. And you might see, re you know, repeat visits for an individual in the emergency room. You just begin to see more opportunities in your population. So claims data that includes some Part D pharmacy data, Medicare pharmacy data, but it also includes all of the professional billing through Part B as well as the Part A, which is the big chunk of it. That's sixty-five percent um, of of what we do is is kind of the Part A Medicare stuff, and so there's claims, and we put that into we have a platform that we contract through Granite Health, which is called Athena, and there's this whole analytics set of, you know, there's analytics we can do as well as reports and that sort of thing to be able to hone in on where we might have opportunities to impact um, 
uh, so, cost as well as quality. So if I'm a beneficiary, I'm, again, 67, I reside in Concord, I'm reliant on Concord Hospital, but I go skiing up at Cannon and break my leg and I get care up uh, what, in Plymouth maybe or someplace like that, you'll now know, I would know that, that. I, that I've had that injury. Yes. And so you might follow up with me and say, hey, you know, you might need to come in and skip follow-up care. Or yeah, I mean, the issue with claims data is that it, there's a lag to it. So okay. we don't okay. get, you know, so it it's be three. Like the next you, day. No, and that's the part of the problem. So claims uh -huh. data is very good at sort of looking back. Uh -huh. What are the trends? What are the patterns? Where where we're going? Are we spending a lot on this or that? Or, you know, looking at that, what it, what's the size of our population with a particular disease? because all of that's included within whatever gets sent in a bill is the information that we get. Okay, so um, individual encounter is not gonna be very helpful to you, but a population level would be. Population, and then individually, we also do, we apply kind of risk scoring algorithms. So what's, you know, so what is the, the risk of this individual using service, you know, medical services, hospital services? What, there's a particular risk and it's based on, you know, the chronic conditions or past utilization patterns. There's a whole bunch of things they feed into their risk scoring. And so we use the risk scoring to kind of stratify our population or put them into segments of high risk or emerging risk. And so that can be helpful for us as a starting point. Perhaps the you know nurse navigators or care managers in the practices will use that as a starting point to say, here's the size of the potential size of the, of the group that we may need to focus on. But then they're going to couple that with clinical data, which will really give, you know, more real-time information on what are the, what, what actual gaps in care. Have they, do they have these screenings or have they, you know, when did they whatever the case may be, what's their, you know, A1C becomes, level or yeah, that sort of sure. thing. And so you can feed that in. And are we having, are we having an impact on them clinically? Are we seeing that managed? And um, have they had their depression screening and that sort of thing? And then you can also, so we use those. And certainly, so there's, there's the Athena piece. And then we are also here locally at Concord, we're going to be implementing a new medical record. Cerner, and they have a population health module. So we're going to be feeding all of our claims data, not just from Medicare, but from all of our various payers and housing it in this one module, which ultimately will fully integrate with our clinical system. And then you can really begin to get that, some of that information out to the people that can take action on it. So there's that data. Then there's additional data, sort of more real time, you know, if they were admitted or um, discharged and that's, so making, being able to make those connections. But there's still gaps, you know, if they went to Mass General, we may or may not know that they we even were there or they were discharged until way after the fact. And so there's definitely gaps that we're we're trying to figure out how do you, how do you you know where do you, how do you create some of those relationships and so that you can understand when you can catch someone when they're coming coming back from um, a hospital stay you know out of state or whatever yeah. um, and then there's also all of the community community based population based data the risk surveillance behavior risk surveillance data or you know, socioeconomic information, which will help us understand maybe the, you know, where the hot spots of, of opportunity are and, and will help us to understand where we can focus resources to help best meet the needs of our community. So there's a lot of different data pieces that we're trying to bring together and then, but bringing it together in a way that sort of gets actionable data to the people that can take action. What's the benefit of having four geographically relatively close, but still you're, 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 40 minutes apart, 30, 40 minutes apart. What's the benefit of having four hospitals like that in this ACO? I think there's, I think one of the biggest is the shared learning opportunity, the sharing okay. of best practice. Okay. Um, other organizations may be doing something better 
and you know you're seeing you can you can learn from them and so it's literally you know sharing templates or process or what have you and saying this worked do this instead of us trying to come up with our own game plan um, it's the ability to compare and contrast and see kind of the variation and then collectively say what are we going to do about this and so the collective thinking around how are you going to begin to understand the issues, better understand your population? You know, it's the ability potentially if there was a big enough issue where you could come together and collaborate and develop some sort of shared program. But I think right now a lot of it is really focused on building collective competencies around how we use the data and the analytics of that, how people, you know, kind of primary care re-engineering, how are you doing? We're just piloting integrating behavioral health. Another organization is already, when we're Douglas is well on their way to integrating behavioral health. So we learn from that. Okay. And, and there's a lot of other examples. And so I think it really is, it's an opportunity to just come together and, and learn from each other in a way that is not, it's not competitive. It's just, we're kind of raising, raising the, the bar for everyone. Is there an incentive in, in this process that would encourage you to say become a center, you know, conquer to be a center of excellence for one thing and Southern New Hampshire to be a center of excellence for another thing and then you cross-refer? I mean, I guess that would come out. I don't see New Hampshire Accountable Care Partners as being the vehicle to sort of make that particular plan yeah. into play. Yeah. But I mean, I think you, sure, I mean, I think you could, you could certainly see where there might be the opportunity to sort of consolidate on some, you know, maybe there's some service or there might be some ability to centralize. And certainly there's organizations that it would be well positioned to do that. But I don't know that I see New Hampshire okay. Accountable Care Partners just, as being I was that. wondering how far yeah. that goes in terms of, of, of integration. And, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, one example. If you all my, benefit from, share, uh, from a shared savings, then if one area could be particularly efficient yeah. than another, then maybe that would be beneficial. I'm, I'm curious as to how that. Yeah, I think the, the, the real immediate opportunity might be, for example, I'm thinking this is not anywhere what you're describing, but the real sort of current thing might be around education. So we okay. have a really robust delirium prevention program. And so other organizations, we can take the expertise and the tools and the resources we developed, and we can extend that out to other people and, you know, at no cost, you know. Yeah. And so that's, that's a real opportunity where we become kind of, I don't want to say a center of excellence, but we become an expert mm -hmm. in a particular area and we extend that out to other organizations. Okay. And then they don't have to invest And they don't in have to invest process. it. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so I think that there's a lot of value in that. Okay. I can see that. So from a technical perspective, how do you, how do you go about deciding, let's say you do achieve a million dollars in savings uh, at, the or at the accountable care organization level, how do you decide how much goes to Southern New Hampshire, how much goes to Concord, how much goes to Wentworth Douglas, how much goes to Elliott? I mean, how does that work? So as an organization, we all came together and we decided it was going to be evenly split. Okay. Um, Twenty, you know. But there's no mandate for that. That was it. Or, or is there? No, there's no mandate that we had to do it precisely that way. That's what we decided. That's how we decided we'd set up. And then we basically said, you know, this is really about shared, you know, coming together, shared goals, but local implementation. So we did not mandate nor define exactly how you would invest that locally. So I think it may be different for different organizations. I mean, for some, maybe it's, you know, you're, you are providing additional incentive to uh, physicians on the quality measures, or maybe it's, it is, I think the majority of though, the idea was to reinvest it back in the infrastructure. So all of the care management and, you know, maybe it's behavioral, maybe other things, but it's not, it's not mandated exactly what that looks like. Okay. So that, but that was a choice by your board to yes. say, this is how we're going to do this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
how are member organizations changing to be successful under this kind of population health-focused model that we're seeing now? I, I think it goes there's. Um, I think it goes back to just the collective momentum building across you know multiple different initiatives, and so I think certainly there's a lot of it that we've talked about. I think they're they're building the same kinds of things I've talked about building at Concord. Other organizations are building the same. So competencies and analytics, the ability to warehouse data, act on it, get that information to people. Um, certainly building up care coordination, man, helping to put process in place to manage it. A transition from the hospital back out to, um, you know, back out to their practice or their medical home, uh, and then having those intensive resources available within the medical and the you know the embedded care management, that is an investment. All of the organizations that are making investments in palliative care, and putting resources in place, uh, building up leadership competencies and capabilities, particularly physician leadership, getting well versed in the language getting well-versed in what does it mean to move to value, having people champion those ideas, getting uh, putting in place standardized processes and, and that sort of thing to be efficient um, and consistent in how care is delivered, building relationships with closer, tighter relationships with skilled nursing facilities as well as home health, um, as well as behavioral health. And I've mentioned sort of the variety of integration of behavioral health and that's going to become, I think, an increasing focus for many of the organizations. So, and then investment in medical home team-based development, which, which I actually should have probably said first because it's really, that's, that's a critical cultural change is that team-based approach. And there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of skills, a lot of role clarification, a lot of changing roles. It takes a commitment from leadership. It takes, you know, ha- helping people understand how it's all gonna work. It takes team development. And that's, that's a huge, um, piece give, of work. Can you give an example of a role change that's important in uh, med- developing a medical home? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the um, one of the roles is a lot in, in many organizations. Medical assistants are taking on more of a health coach role, where they're kind of counseling. So they're using, they're being trained in motivational interviewing skills, which really has gets to helping people talking to people and listening and help and helping understand what motivates them and what their goals are what matters to them and how do they move from you know which in turn helps to influence behavior change and so getting people developed in a new set of skills where now they're going to be doing some of that they might be doing some of the, that motivational interviewing which will help to set them up kind of as part of the team help that individual begin to address some of the behavioral changes. More responsibility, more clarity, and and then, you know, you have a new role again, the nurse navigator role at at Concord, similar roles in other places. That's a new role. That has not existed where it's part of the team in in primary care. So what do they do? Helping the physicians, you know, or the providers understand this is what this person does, and so this is the type of person that will benefit from these services. This is the skill sets that they bring. And, 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 you know, certainly those are two examples of how the roles, new roles have been introduced in Nurse Navigator as well as roles are, are being modified from existing clinical staff where they may have been doing, you know, largely doing pharmacy refills or immunizations. And now they're suddenly going to be taking on more of a health coach yeah. type role. From a very mechanical process to a much more a higher level. Right. Yeah. And, so, and so really getting the entire team 
thinking about what it means to be part of a team and clearly understanding what how each fits together and what and what they bring to the what they bring to the team. Just kind of shifting to leadership as the executive director, you don't have the authority to command the participating hospitals to do anything. So, what's that as a how is that how has that shaped your leadership in this role? So, I think it, 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 I mentioned before, it's a position of influence. And I think when you have a position of influence, I think you start from a, from a per, per position of delivering the most value and service you can to the individuals that you're trying to influence. So I think one is just understanding what is it kind of, what is it that you need? What is, what are you trying to do? Being understanding and listening. And, and I think really what that boils down to is building relationships and listening to people and, and trying to respond and, and, bring things, you know, kind of create value and service to people. So I think being influential requires uh, time and investment in building relationships. And, and from that, I think that's where you can move things forward more, much more so than any, probably more than anything else, but, you know, relationship, value and service. So thanks for all that information so far. I just want to kind of conclude on a question particularly for the young folks that are in my program that are interested in, in health management and this interface between public health and, and, and direct care. Uh, what advice do you have for someone who's thinking about going into healthcare administration today, whether they're coming straight into the field from a program like health management and policy where I teach, uh, maybe a master's level like you did, what should they be pursuing? What kind of jobs? I think there's a ton of opportunity, and it's not always what you would traditionally think of as in healthcare management. Certainly, there's so many technology companies that are out there that are doing a lot of interesting work. There are home health agencies, more community-based organizations. There's hospitals. There's you know the broader health systems. There's practices. There's practice management. There's the work that I'm doing. There's data. You know, so I, I think you know as I thought about this, is is really taking advantage of the opportunities. When they, when they present themselves, recognizing an opportunity when it comes up and then taking advantage of it if you can, I think is just huge. And I think being curious, kind of, you know, as I, as my dad would say, follow your nose. I mean, curious, have intellectual curiosity, read, go to webinars, go to conferences, network, pick people's brains, you know, take advantage of those opportunities when they come up. Um, social media is another really interesting place to sort of see trends that are coming out and um, certainly LinkedIn groups. So I think there's a lot of things. So just kind of taking advantage of, of the wealth of information that did not exist when, when I was starting. And, and, and I think you learn a lot just by talking to people and asking the question, you know, what'd you do? Why'd you do it? Or what are you doing? And so, so really investing in relationships, I think, is another important piece of advice, I would say. And then I think that I, I, there were some questions around mentoring, and I do agree the value, there's a great value in mentors, and I, I've also, I've always sought out mentors, and I think that's something that you sh- that anyone who's thinking about this should seek a mentor, and, and mentors with a variety of perspectives. I think you could seek out a mentor in healthcare, at the same time, you know, as I mentioned, there might be someone who has a technology perspective or someone who has a behavior change or someone who has a community-based advocacy perspective that could be really informative and helpful. And so when the, when the opportunity is there, take advantage of it. So you've, when you've pursued mentors, you've looked for people with different kinds of, of uh, backgrounds. Yeah, I look. For, I'll, I will seek out mentors in a variety. Of, you know, 
I mentor, sometimes I'll look for mentors that have exhibit leadership qualities that I really admire. I will seek out mentors from a variety, you know, could be from a variety of, of industries just to say, hey, and, you know, it, it's just interesting because it, it kind of boils down to when I think about, you know, communication. I mean, communication in healthcare is not altogether different from communication when you're talking about a global industry that's trying to put together some multifaceted strategy, you know, you're, you're still, so you can learn from, from mentors that have, that are not just strictly healthcare. And so I think, I think diversity of perspective and, 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 and gaining that from a myriad of ways is, is a big piece of advice that I would have. And then I think it's just, I think it's, it's just sort of mindset. It's looking at, again, if you think about opportunities and just having that growth mindset of just kind of continuing to build and continuing to expand the repertoire um, and certainly focusing on some basic foundational stuff, facility with data, getting really comfortable with critical thinking, being thinking about how you communicate and in a variety of ways and always working on building relationships. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate all, sure. all the great information you've given us. Good. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.